Hello, and welcome to This Thing Called Life, a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about acts of giving, kindness, compassion, and humanity. Your host, Andy Johnson, will introduce you to powerful stories about organ, eye, and tissue donation from individuals, families, and healthcare teams whose experiences will inspire you and remind you that while life is hard, unpredictable, and imperfect, it's also beautiful. We are so happy you're here. Now, let's join the show. Welcome to this thing called life. I'm your host, Andy Johnson, and thank you so much for listening, and I hope you are doing well. This is our third episode in our series, The Donation Process Through the Lens of the OPO. And we are exploring how donation unfolds within the Organ Procurement Organization, or OPO, as we refer to ourselves. And so we are taking you step-by-step through the process um, just to help you learn and understand more about what it is that we do to facilitate this gift that is organ, eye, and tissue donation. So far, we've talked to Erica Randall of Donation Support Services, and Donation Support Services is really where the process begins because that's where the hospital uh, calls uh, to report a death, and that is kind of where we determine whether that patient could be suitable for donation. Uh, so I encourage you to check that episode out. And then we follow uh, Erica with Christiane Wilson, who is an organ recovery specialist. And so that is the point, the organ, or I'm sorry, the donation coordinator. And that is the point where um, the next step in the process is um, transition to the donation coordinator to determine suitability and um, if donation can actually occur. So very interesting. I encourage you to visit lifepassiton.org or visit wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, This thing called life is available. So please just put in this thing called life and just learn more. And I'm excited to launch into step three of the process where we really kind of take a turn and it's more of an intimate step into working with our families um, to facilitate this gift um, during really uh, quite possibly the worst day of their life. So we're gonna dive into that. Um, Organized tissue donation does not happen without collaboration. And you know, most people think that donation is um, something that happens in the hospital And while it does happen in the hospital, um, it is the OPO that really is um, a significant cog in this donation wheel, if you will. will. So I think it's important to talk about what we do as an OPO in partnership and collaboration uh, with our hospitals where donation occurs, and then also working with our transplant centers as we are working really hard to recover the gifts of organ um, to give to patients who are at transplant centers waiting for life-saving organ transplants, as well as uh, working with our tissue processors to recover tissue for life healing and enhancing tissue transplants. There's so much that unfolds. OPO is a big part of that, but again, there's also um, a multitude of other partners, and this really is a multifaceted collaborative approach and process. Donation happens because of community, uh, the hospitals, uh, our donor hospitals and our transplant centers 
uh, the OPO. Um, also, the coroner sometimes is involved in term, uh, uh, depending on the, the type of death that has occurred. And then there's also the funeral home. We work with very closely to make sure that um, the person's love, uh, person's wishes are honored, um, both on the donation side, but also um, on the, the celebration of their life. So we work very closely with them as well. Um, but we can't forget that the very beginning of this process is the person who decided for themselves to be a donor or their family who made the decision for that individual to be a donor. This life-saving and life-changing gift all begins with that yes. And that's really important to emphasize. And we'll talk more about that with my guest. Um, we also wanna just talk about the OPO and how we function. Um, so that you can understand how donation comes to be and all of the intricacies of this life-saving and life-healing process. Uh, we're gonna use our time to also just, uh, you know, it's kind of a way to talk about and promote ourselves as an OPO. There may be someone listening today who is looking into a career in healthcare. This is a little bit of a non-traditional path, but it's a wonderful, rewarding field to be a part of. Um, so I want you to hopefully get a better understanding about us, uh, our mission, and our people-focused work. So my guest today is, she's newer to the Life Center family, um, and she is a family service coordinator, and her name is Miss Jen Mayloff. Hello, Jen. Welcome to the show. How are you? Oh, hi, Andy. Thank you for having me, and Absolutely. I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. I'm really happy to be here. I'm happy to have a chance to talk with you. Absolutely. And I'm happy to have you here as well. Just, you know, as I said, I really feel like the family service role, it is to me kind of the more um, intimate piece of what we do here because the family service coordinator really is just with a family um, from the start of the donation process all the way through. And so with that, I just, let's learn a little bit more about you. Um, how long have you been with Life Center? So, um, yeah, like you said, I'm a newbie. I started, <laughs> started I'm not the newest, but um, right. I, I'm still pretty new. I started about a year ago in April. Um, and... The thing is, you know, I think that they'll have to take me out of this job in a wheelchair because I think it's, <laughs> it definitely is going to be my last job if I have um, control over that. So, wow. yeah, I love it. And I think I'm a non-traditional employee in a way because I'm, um, I was <clears throat> a stay-at-home mom mm -hmm. for about two decades wow. before returning to work full-time. And, uh, you know, I had read, I remember when I was thinking about, okay, I'm really one of those people that's starting a second career and what's that mm -hmm. going to look like for me and what can I do and how can I help? I always wanted to do something that's bigger than me. Mm -hmm. um, but I think many people <clears throat> might be able to relate to the fact that I felt that I didn't have any hard skills. Really? You know, I didn't. Yeah. I just felt, you know, I was, I have a communications degree and I worked in sales for hotels right out of college. I later <clears throat> decided that um, I really was interested in, in uh, teaching. So I got a teaching degree and mm -hmm. um, I began teaching 
and I loved teaching. Um, but I stopped, you know, when my kids were born. And I think when you've been out of the workforce for 20 years, you just, I personally wondered is what, what value, you know, what can I add? I'm not sure. Mm. But I did know that over those 20 years, I knew I had some, I think some decent soft skills, you know, <laughs> when I think about my life journey over the, over my life, I think, well, I knew I had something to offer. So when I heard about this position and some of the requirements, I just, I was kind of running to the mm. interview. I was running. It was the, you know, when I was filling out the application, I was just excited. And when I got the chance to interview, I was excited. And I think I was so convinced I was, you know, what was I going to do if they didn't, <laughs> didn't hire me? I, I might've just said, well, just, just take me on for 30 days and see what you think. <laughs> Let's just do a trial run. And do a trial run. Come on now. <laughs> I love it. But, but some of the things, honestly, that I think um, yeah, well, I, I can talk about that a little later, but yes, I feel yeah. very lucky to be here um, and hoping that they'll have me until it's time for me to retire. So talk about what you do to help facilitate the gift of organ, eye, and tissue donation. So as a family services coordinator, I'm actually, my role is to be uh, really the first person who speaks with that family and supports that family uh, and, and informs that family mm -hmm. about either the opportunity for their loved one to be a donor mm -hmm. or um, um, if their loved one was already a registered donor, I, I don't necessarily know if the family knows that, right. but it's my role to let them know that and answer their questions and support them through the whole process. And when I talk about that process for a family service coordinator, our role begins when we step foot on that ICU and when we have that first interaction with that family. Mm -hmm. Um, and if it's a registered donor, we're going to be with that family and supporting that family through that two to three day donation process or one to two day or whatever right. length of time it takes. And then, um, our scope of practice goes six weeks after that donation transplant surgery happens. Mm -hmm. And we, um, we end our scope of practice with a letter to these families about those recipients who received the gift. And in that letter, we share a little bit of non-identifying information mm -hmm. um, about the recipients and about the ways that their loved one, you know, really gave life to other people. So, um, and then there's a lot of stuff in between <laughs> from that first meeting until, you know, that six weeks after. Um, yeah. A lot of stuff in between. And there's so, there seems to be just in what I've learned, um, you all do so much to just, um, even before you are 
speaking to a family. Um, there's so much that has to unfold in preparation so that you can be present for that family. Mm -hmm. um, right. So I would guess multitasking is probably an important skill to have. Would you agree? I would really agree. Yeah. When we get, yes, definitely. And we're doing a lot of multitasking, probably the highest, the highest level of anxiety I feel in my role is right when I learn we've got to get to the hospital. Mm. When, when, when our donation coordinators have been told that um, there may be a brain death exam occurring or that family has made that incredibly difficult decision um, to withdraw life support right. with their loved one, knowing that there's no quality of life left. When they've made that very difficult decision, we are coming on site. Those are the times that we're speaking with families. And so, yeah, we've got to multitask because even in driving to the hospital, I don't know if we're supposed to, probably shouldn't admit this, but um, sometimes if, you know, I can be on call, but I can also be in a meeting. And so then I right. get called that we've got, that I've got to get to a hospital. Right. Well, I've got to notify certain people that I'm heading there. I've got to, um, I've got to know which hospital I'm driving to. Mm -hmm. We have 35 in our DSA. Um, I've got to make sure I've got all my gear. Obviously, we don't have offices at any hospital, so we carry all of our stuff with us. Need to have files and computers and things like that. Um, and sometimes I need to, while I'm driving, I may not have had the opportunity to, I know which hospital I'm going to, but I need my donor, my patient's name, what yes. floor is he or she on. I need all that stuff. So sometimes while driving, I'm actually phoning one of my teammates and asking her to read me some of the clinical Just to history. get you, yeah. right? Yep, you doing that because, because when I enter the doors of the hospital, I mean, every, the, I just feel like the clock is ticking mm -hmm. and I, there's no time to waste because this family is in a very emotionally raw mm -hmm. place mm -hmm. and they can't stay in that emotionally raw place for a very long time. Right. Once they've made that decision, they right. want to either leave the hospital or they want that withdrawal support to happen now. It's, right. it's so hard. So time is of the essence. When I speak to that family in terms of multitasking, I don't have anything in my hands. I don't come with, we're not in sales. We're not in Right. We're, we're here to provide support and to offer information about the option for donation. And if I could just jump in, I would think too, every, every situation, every family is unique, right? 100%. You heard um, Christiane Wilson say that if you've been on one donor case, you've been on one, one. donor case. That's yep. exactly right. Yeah. And so you can't go in with any preconceived notion um, in terms of your multitasking. I know that I have a requirement to give this family, if, if their loved one isn't a donor, I have to give them the information that they need to make the most informed decision about what's right for their family. Um, so I need to keep that in my head, all those things that I need to share with them. Right. 
but at the same time, I'm walking into an ICU room with a patient, um, grieving family. I may know a little bit about the family in there from speaking with the bedside nurse and the care team, but they may share that there are three sisters who are at bedside. I don't know which sister is with who. I don't know who the spouses are. It's and then there's the the family dynamics, like yes, I don't that, know. That's a whole is. other yeah, right. So, <laughs> so I am in I am in high observation <laughs> mode. My anxiety is through the roof, right. <laughs> but that's right. keeping me on my toes. If I the day I don't feel that level of anxiety, I probably should just right hang up my hat. Um, so I'm trying to take in a massive amount of information just with my eyes mm -hmm. in the very few seconds that I'm stepping into that room. Right. I want to meet that family where they are. And I know that it's in a really heavy place. Mm -hmm. I want to find out what they understand because the diagnosis of brain death is, a, it's rare. It's right. not easy to understand or if they have made that decision to withdraw support, I need to confirm that. I need to make sure. And those are things that have to happen before I can even begin to launch into the information mm -hmm. about donation. So yeah, lots of multitasking. <laughs> and again, managing all of this <clears throat> with a with time restrictions because the recovery of the gifts. So it's a really delicate, you know, balance. Yeah, I, yeah you're right. Donation is extremely time sensitive. And um, yeah, and the information is critical. And it's a really difficult, if you're thinking, if you, if you think about a non-registered donor and that family, um, like I've said, they've made this extremely difficult decision to withdraw support, or they've just learned that their loved one is brain dead. And now they're going to get, um, they're going to learn that their loved one falls into this extremely rare position where mm -hmm. because of the manner in which they have passed or because they're on this ventilator and support is going to be withdrawn, they, they have the ability to be an organ donor. Right. And, and this puts them among 1% right. of all people who pass. So many people can be um, a tissue and an eye donor um, and, and save, save lives in that way. But the gifts of organ, um, we have to pass on a ventilator and that's right. not the most common way to pass. Most right. of us will pass when our heart stops beating. Right. So that's again, my challenge is to help families in this really critical time. I don't get too much time there. I never expect that a family is going to give me much time, but I have to do my best to get that message across. Right. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk about, this is probably not the best way to ask this. I was going to say, can you tell us what a typical day looks like? for you, but I'm gonna roll with it anyway. What does a typical day look like for Jen Mayloff, Family <laughs> Service Coordinator at Life Center? 
Um, there's no typical day. <laughs> there's, just, there's just no typical day. Let me think of where I can go with that. Um, and also about your schedule, because as we know, donation does not occur, you know, from mm -hmm. between eight and five. It's, no, it you know, doesn't. it just, it happens when life no, happens. No, it doesn't. I think so. some interest, yes, you're right. So <laughs> there's two parts to this role. I've got meetings, I've got office work. I have letters to write to families after donation, to hospitals. Um, we thank the hospitals. We thank the attending physician for his or her role. We thank the um, intensive care unit staff. We thank the operating room staff. I mean, all of these people, um, it's the realization with these letters to hospitals that donation touches so many people yes. and those you know, nurses and the healthcare team because donation organ donation is so rare um it's only right that they are allowed to receive a little bit of follow-up about what happened to their patient and how was this patient able to help others again all non-identifying information and with the greatest respect for confidentiality so um those are things that keep me and send me to the office. We also have ongoing training for my role. So we have monthly skills lab. We have, um, we have family service meetings, you know, weekly. We have case reviews where we're discussing in the office because there is no typical case. Right. So as a team, we're coming together and we're discussing how did that approach with that family work? What what were some roadblocks there? How did you handle it? Because, you know, we all know that there's this huge likelihood that we'll be in situations like that next. And so we're in a constant, constant learning and sharing mode. So that would be a little bit of typical office stuff. Okay. Um, in terms of an on-call day, I can also be in the office doing things like I've just mentioned. But I'm also watching our board, which is um, probably Christiane talked about it, Erica from DSS talked about it. These are our patients who have met certain criteria that CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has determined um, when patients meet certain criteria, those hospitals have to notify their local OPO. Right. So these patients are on our board. And in family services, we're often reading case notes about those patients and particularly we're looking for family dynamics. What does the family understand? Have they been told the grim prognosis? Um, are, is this family uh, a local family or uh, was this, is this patient local but family's out of town and they're waiting for key decision makers of the family to come into town? We're reading, you know, when I'm on call, I'm looking at the board and reading different case notes as much as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's say that um, I'm on call and it doesn't happen to be a Monday through Friday, so it's Saturday and I'm at home. Well, I'm a little bit careful not to go too too far from my home. <laughs> but if I get if I get called, I have a little uh, an hour, up to okay. one hour to get to the hospital. Now, in my case, I live pretty close to mm -hmm. uh, the hospitals. And it should not in any way, shape or form, it wouldn't be right of me to take a whole hour. Um, I just need to get in my car and go whenever I get that call. I need to get on site as fast as I can because I have a lot of information that I need to learn. Is that a registered, um, is this patient a registered donor? I need to know that 
before I speak with the family. And I need to document that. I need to document that I've double, triple checked because God forbid I speak to a person who's, I speak to the wrong person or the wrong family, right? Right, right. So I need to doubt that is, I, that is part of my practice. I cannot speak to that family until I've confirmed that registry status. I need to get on site and talk to the healthcare team. If it's a rushed approach, I might be calling that nurse mm-hmm. um, and I might be getting on to that ICU unit, dropping my bag and heading right into that room to talk to that family. Um, I might be calling one of my family services teammates. We sometimes do phone a friend um, on our way to an approach because we're thinking through, okay, what is the best way, um, you know, to share what we have to share with this particular family? Or maybe we want to practice our verbiage or whatever, whatever, because there are certain words that we do not use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For example, it's we recover gifts now. We don't use that H that word. H word. That H word. Or we, you know, um, yeah, there's a lot of verbiage that we use that shows respect for you know what's going on so so if i get sorry go ahead no i just so i i again it's like there's so many layers to what you do and um you know what what keep what i keep coming back to is just um you have to be a strong intuitive compassionate communicator um I think to 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 be in in this role and to work with families in the way that you do. What about if there is a situation where there may be a language barrier of some sort? Yeah, and how a- how yeah I, how does a how does a family service coordinator then yeah. work through something like that? That's a really good question, Andy, and. Um, if we're at a hospital like a UC, mm-hmm. they have interpreter services. And so that's added to my list of to-dos as I'm coming on site, I'm understanding, let's say we have a Spanish speaking family. Right. So I'm gonna, um, and I'm often doing this as I'm leaving my car, <laughs> walking into the hospital, I'm contacting, um, I'm contacting our, that department at UC and I'm letting them know that I'm here to approach a family about donation and they're Spanish speaking and you know could one of their interpreters meet me on the unit the only time that there's a no in that is if there's an emergency situation in the ED and that interpreter has to be available so for a hospital that's a level one trauma center like UC they've got different um language specialists on board. In -hmm. other hospitals, we will rely on, um, I think it's like a web internet kind of translator service. So it's a real human, right? But we have them linked in on an iPad. And so I'm actually coming in to speak with the family and I'm under, you know, and so, and the family might be used to this already because maybe their healthcare team has had to use these um, web interpreter services so um yeah it just it it, it's actually not it's difficult but sometimes it slows things down as well yeah which is can be a good thing 
can be yeah. a good thing. Mm -hmm. I would envision if someone was interested in a position like this, they would um, probably like to be doing something where no day is ever the same. Yeah, that's and, and can also respond well to pressure, uh, working well within a team, but also, um, you know, having the ability to lead and, you know, um, and navigate difficult discussions. I mean, there's just a, a plethora of things that are necessary to, I think, thrive in a role in this. And, I, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with you as well as um, other coordinators. And I think you all possess that skill set in your own unique ways. And, um, it's really just great to watch you all, because um, when you're all on site, you, you all really do work well together, you can tell. So it's really, really great to observe. Oh, thank uh, you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. What is it that, Jen, what is it you find most challenging about your role? Mm. It is such a challenging role, like in general, and I think that's why I like it. Yeah, um, I could, I could, I could see that. <laughs> and I think to those things that you just mentioned, it's never the same. Yeah. Um, we go through a tremendous training program, and in my naivete at the beginning <laughs> of that, when I was hired, I thought, oh, great, ninety days, and I'll be good to go. I'm you know, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> yeah. And even Renee, you know, Renee, she's our trainer. She's been a family services coordinator for 14 years. Mm. And she will have cases that there's no two cases that are the same. So every family is different. Um, so therefore, to the pressure that is constantly there when you're about to speak with a family because you only get this, in my opinion, you only get this one time. There aren't redos. There no. aren't redos, you know, this a family has allowed you in, got information to share, mm -hmm. um, can't, can't redo it. Um, I forgot your question, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> My question was, what do you find most, and so I'm going to give, this is going to be a two-parter now. What do okay, you find most challenging and mm -hmm. what do you find most rewarding about mm -hmm. being a family service coordinator? Okay. Um, most challenging, can't just answer in one way. Most, it's always a children's case is very challenging. Mm -hmm. um, when we have a child, a patient at Children's Hospital on our board, you can just feel a heaviness in the hospital, in the, in the, at the office. You can just feel a heaviness. Um, And if you're on call and it's the day that we need to speak to that family, I mean, I, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Mm -hmm. The humility, I think, that we leave, because we, many of us are parents, we can't mm -hmm. imagine what this family is going through and um and you're so close to it in those moments 
you're so close to it, you just, uh, it's so challenging to keep that professional distance, mm -hmm. you know, it's, um, I mean, even like now, like my voice can crack talking about it because there's not a case at Children's. I remember all of my cases. Right. I mean, when Christiane, I, when she was speaking to you and she said, there are just cries and screams and mm -hmm. pictures and visions that you have seen on this job that no matter what you can't erase. Well, right. there are families, I, I can't, I, there are just families I can't erase. I mean, and mm -hmm. grief that I've seen that, mm. um, yeah, isn't, I can't erase it. Um, at mm. the same time, when these families have chosen donation, mm -hmm. um, it's beyond an honor, beyond an honor to interact with those families, support them on this really courageous, generous, selfless, you know, heroic decision that they've made in the worst possible moment of their life. Mm -hmm. And I look at these people like angels walking around on earth because mm -hmm. in their worst moments, they're saving other people and they're thinking of other people. Um, it's, it's just, it's humbling. Mm -hmm. And it's you know, just, I'm sorry, go ahead. So that's challenging. Um, the other thing that's a little challenging is that our, our days when we're on a donor case and supporting families can be so heavy, so difficult. Th so that transition back to your home life mm -hmm. is challenging. And there's been times I thought, am I okay for, for in, in a strange way? For example, I might be coming home after say a children's case. Mm -hmm. And it might be five or six o'clock. And then you just have this normal life experience. Like you're pulling into your driveway and your neighbor's coming up and her son is selling candy bars for the band trip. Right. And they say, how are you? And you say, oh, I'm doing well. And how right. are you guys? And then you proceed to talk about the band trip and, you know, his excitement and, and mom's excitement. And then you walk inside and you think, I've just been rubbing the back of a mother who said goodbye to her child. Right. And I just pivoted to make another child happy who's doing a very normal child thing. Right. And then sometimes I just kind of want to shake my head and I'm like, am I okay? Like, should a human be able to do that? Like mm -hmm. go from those two extremes, you know? And sometimes I just have to sit with that and just say, it's the role we're in. It's what we do. Life None of us gets out of here alive. Life is part of, death is part of life, right. you know? And I just go back to, um, it's an honor to be part of it, but it is hard. There are many right. things that are hard. That would be the most challenging. Um, and in a way, maybe in some of my answer of the most challenging, I've already answered what the most rewarding right. is. Just, it's something, this job is so much bigger than myself or one person. It's yeah. so rewarding to work with the teams, right. the donation coordinators and my the family service team, everybody at Life Center is passionate about what we do, saving lives. I once heard someone say that organs, donated organs are a national treasure because mm. we have so few of them and we need so many more. Mm. 
And mm -hmm. so when you're part of something that an organization who's actually helping to, you know, provide life to other people, it's, it's incredibly rewarding. Yeah. I definitely, definitely agree with you. And so as you talked about um, just what an honor it is to be with the family um, and watching them and just, you know, walk through such a heart-wrenching and difficult um, moment in their life, can you also talk about um, the honor walks that sometimes take place mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. when we do have... Um, an individual who is able to help other people as an organ donor. I can. So an honor walk is a combined effort between the hospital and the OPO um, as a way to, again, allow all the people involved um, in the hospital or um, the family members to show their deepest respects for the decision that that patient has made or the decision that that family has made. So an honor walk is something that occurs right before we are ready to wheel that patient donor from his or her ICU room to the doors of the OR, in the case of brain death, or um, into the uh, PACU, um, which is if they're a donor who is, it, it's gonna be donation after circulatory death. Mm -hmm. then um, so either way it's 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 something that happens um, as we're journeying with that donor to the OR and mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's an invitation for all healthcare workers who have taken part in this person's care mm -hmm. or not mm -hmm. it's every healthcare worker in that hospital we it, it, the um, invitation goes out to everyone. So we have security guards, we have um, volunteers. You can be someone who works in the cafeteria and you know that a donor is in this hospital. And because it's so rare, people wanna show their respect. And so they just line up along the corridor and they create a path that along the route to, to, the, to, the, to the operating room. Mm -hmm. And um, it's usually the um, trans, transport team, respiratory therapist, bedside nurse, they're actually pushing the bed and making sure that, you know, all the machines are moving right along with that donor. Um, the family is generally walking behind the bed of the donor and Family services are right in there with the family, supporting them on this walk. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the walk from the ICU to the OR can be on a different floor mm -hmm. um, and it can be a long walk and we need to be aware, you know, we might have an, uh, an older family member who can't make that walk. So mm -hmm. we're getting wheelchairs, whatever it is that we need. Um, and many times we will um, also provide candles mm -hmm. to wow. those who are participating in the honor walk. And so we can have corridors just lit by candles um, and it's very silent. Mm -hmm. um, I've been on honor walks where family members have literally shouted, thank you, thank you, thank you all mm -hmm. along the way to the healthcare team. Mm -hmm. um, I've been on honor walks at children's where 
child life specialist has spoken with the family and learned the favorite song or nursery rhyme of that, that, that child. And that child life specialist is um, strumming her guitar. Mm. And more than once it's happened that everybody lining up on the honor walk will then join in softly singing that mm. child's favorite lullaby or nursery rhyme um, as that family's heading to the OR to say goodbye. Oh my goodness. Their loved one. It is, it's incredible. And it mm. comes from the deepest place of respect. Mm -hmm. And I know it, it is very meaningful mm. to those families. Oh, you're making me like tear up, Jen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard for all of us. It is. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I just think that people don't, they want to do something and sometimes there's nothing you can do but be there. Just show up. You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. So, I, I feel like you've really painted a very real picture of what it is that you do here every day. Um, I want to thank you uh, because I know I know how emotionally difficult this work can be, um, while also rewarding, as we talked about. But it is, it, it, it's a lot, it's very heavy. Um, and so to be able to show up that way and support uh, families in the way that you and, and your colleagues do every day um, is just, it's just, it's, it's amazing. And um, I just, I thank you. I thank you and your whole department because I know, I know that this is, it's hard. It's hard and you're doing such, you're just, you're, you're, you're there for families. So thank you. Thank you. And I'd be remiss, you know, we have to speak about that team. I feel like I'm here and I'm doing this job because not just Renee, I mean, Renee's incredible mm -hmm. um, with her knowledge and the way that she speaks with families. And, you know, part of our training is that we get to go on site and watch our team members do what they do. We learn our job backwards. Mm. We, we learn our job backwards. We are allowed um, early on, we're learning about the medical social history. That's something that as family service coordinators, we have to um, complete that with the family and initially I thought well I wonder why we're not clinical you know but wouldn't it be better to have a clinical person do this but the truth is it's always what's best for the family right and the family's made a connection with you at that point and so it makes sense that that you a family service coordinator can be trained to ask these questions and follow up and get all the information that's needed. So we learn all about this medical social history and how to take it and gather mm -hmm. that data. We learn that first. And when we're at a point in our training where we're ready to actually perform that task, then we do that. That is actually one of the very final things that we do with families. Okay. But we learn it first. The second thing we learn is how to complete the notification or authorization form. And those are more the legal documents of donation. It's the 
you know, informed consent, if you will, mm -hmm. documents that we have to get through with each family so that they understand what gifts potentially can be recovered, what gifts we'll be evaluating, and what that whole process looks like. And so we're trained extensively in how to get, um, how to explain those forms and explain them to families um, and answer all questions. And that's this, once we learn that, then now suddenly we're doing, um, the notification or authorization with the family and the medical social history. Mm. The very last part of our job is the, uh, it's the first part of our job, but it's the last part that we learn. And it's the very last part that we're allowed to do. And it's called the approach. And that's where we're actually speaking with families. So um, I began this question by saying that there's huge gratitude to the team because I really think in addition to Renee, as a new uh, family services person, you are shadowing your teammates. And really, I, I remember going out first couple of times thinking, man, 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 I have to be a burden because <laughs> this person is in a really stressful, anxious state. And here's me tagging along, you know, and I just, because my <laughs> job is to watch and be quiet, stay out of the way and learn as much as I can. But, you know, it does make their job harder because they do have to think about teaching me and it is harder when you feel someone's watching you you know interact with the family but because of these these women and I say women because we're a team of women right now um in you know I when training was over I felt I had the confidence to go do what I need to do and it's also these are the women who I'm going to lean on when a case is hard but they are always we're, you know it's rare to get home after a hard case and not have a text or a call from one of your teammates saying, are you okay? Mm -hmm. And that even crosses family services boundaries. You can have one of the donation coordinators who you are working with, we'll check in with each other. Um, we're always- That's right, checking on each other. All the time, for sure. That's important. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Well, Jen Mayloff, I wanna thank you for sharing um, just about what it is that you do um, in helping to uh, facilitate donation. Um, and I just, again, wanna thank you just for all the work that you do with our families and, and walking with them. Um, Thanks, Andy. This was really, really um, a pleasure. And thank you for all the work you do because you're getting the word out um, about what donation is, what it can mean, how it helps. And so you actually make my job easier because, mm -hmm. um, because of you and the awareness that you bring to the community. It's often that when I walk in with a family, they have a really positive view about what donation is. So thanks to you. Oh, thank you. It's, we all work together, right? You're humble. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well, as we close out the show today, um, I want to remind all of you that there are 105,833 men, women, and children in need of life-saving organ transplants. What can you do to help? If you're not registered, seek out the information and research what being a donor truly means. Speak with a medical professional about donation or connect with someone who has gone through the experience as either a donor family member, a recipient, or a living donor. 
Um, this is how we learn um, and just really understanding what the process is and what it isn't. And again, I thank Jen for just sharing her perspective and working with, with donor families and all of our families. Um, and it's just, it's one of those things, I think it's just important to understand how, um, how we can help other people um, through the donation process. Um, and part of too, which I wanted to touch on, but just talking about you know, sharing your decision with your family um, so that your decision can be honored, I think is really important. And I, I see Jen over here nodding. So she's agreeing with me. Um, yeah. So also though, you can register to be a donor, which also helps then when, and then share that decision, as I said, with your family so that they can honor that decision. Um, you can also learn about becoming a living kidney donor because the vast majority of the people on that national wait list are people who are in need of life-saving kidney transplants. So I wanna thank you all so much for tuning in today. And I just wanna remind you to please be kind to yourself always and to others. Thank you so much and take care. This episode is brought to you by LifeSetter. Are you interested in saving someone's life by becoming a living donor? You have the potential to help save and enhance the lives of others, those who suffer from chronic illness or the effects of traumatic events. Statistics have shown that a new name is added to the national waiting list every 10 minutes. You have the opportunity to help others and save lives. You have the power to donate life. By offering a kidney or a portion of the liver, living donors offer their loved one or friend an alternative to waiting on the national transplant waiting list for an organ from a deceased donor. Today, the number of living donors is more than 7,300 per year and one in four of these donors is not biologically related to the recipient. Go to Life Pass It On for more information. Thanks to Life Center for their continued support. Thank you for listening to This Thing Called Life. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcast to make sure you get updates on all new episodes. And we would truly appreciate it if you would share, like, or give us a review to help us grow.